Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. We have another great story queued for us this morning, but it's another relatively long passage. So let me give you just one tip for engaging with this story. Try to pay attention to where the story makes a significant turn. What's, what's the turning point in, in this story that we're about to look at? And I want to tag this text with a beautiful image that we're about to see in this text, and that is pools in the wilderness pools in the wilderness. Let's look at God's word together, 2 Kings 3. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebad, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. When Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he sent Uh, And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of Yahweh here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, Were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you, but now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink you, your livestock, and your animals." This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, 
Behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. They went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Hereseth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Let's pray one more time. Our Father in heaven, we, with the psalmist, say that we have seen a limit to all perfection. But your word is exceedingly broad. Your word has no imperfections. It has no inconsistencies. It leads us. It takes us by the hand and brings us back to you. So we pray now that the posture of our hearts would reflect the posture of our Bibles, that they would be open to hear your word that we wouldn't hear it only, but that we would hear it and put it into practice in our lives, that we would be doers of your word. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, just over two weeks ago on March 17th, one of the most surprising matches in March Madness history took place. It was the first seeded Purdue Boilermakers versus the 16th seeded uh, Fairleigh Dickinson University Knights. I didn't even know that was a real college until a few weeks ago. It was a surprising match. Before the match began, most analysts believed that this was the greatest disparity out of any matchup in the whole tournament. It was a certain defeat for the FDU Knights. So it was a bit intriguing when right out of the gate, the FDU Knights took the lead. And it remained quite surprising when throughout the game they maintained a lead over the Purdue Boilermakers. There are some other surprises that went on during the game. For over five minutes of game time, which is a long time in basketball, the Knights held the Boilermakers to no points. Uh, The bench players for the FDU Knights outscored the bench players for Purdue by 20 points. There are many surprises in this game. Well, it wasn't surprising then to see that Purdue then began to inch themselves back toward the end of the game, but there were a few more twists in store. With just over one minute left, one of the junior players for FDU hit a three-pointer to put them up by six points and essentially clinched the victory for the 16th seed. For only the second time in over 35 years, this team who thought they were certainly defeated before the game had won a surprising victory. I read this morning, I'm just fascinated by this story. The coach said, if we were to play them 100 times, we'd lose 99 out of, out of 100. But that one time came on March 17th. Well, beloved, 
the story we just read actually details and tells us a story of a far more surprising win than FDU over Purdue. It is the story of Israel fighting against Moab. Now, the reason why it might have not have caught you as an upset of sorts or as a surprising victory of sorts is because there are a lot of things in this story that we easily miss. This story happened a long time ago. Uh, we don't easily assimilate ourselves to stories in history that are unfamiliar to us. It's an unfamiliar land. We don't really understand the geography of the ancient Near East. And we're also unaccustomed to war tactics that are described in this story. But let me assure you that the victory that Israel wins in this story is far more surprising than FDU over Purdue. There's no iPhones or high-tech cameras to record this victory. There is no DVR so that we could watch it afterwards, but this was written down by the most reliable source himself, and that is the Holy Spirit. And I think there's one principle that emerges from this story that is important for you and me today, because here's the question we always should be asking. It's worth reading the Bible for its own sake, but we should be curious, what does this really mean for my life? Well, I want to show you one principle from this text, and it's this, that God's grace can turn a certain defeat into a surprising victory. God's grace can turn a certain defeat into a surprising victory. Stories like these are in the Bible to challenge our low views of God's grace. We tend to drift as human beings, and our views of God's grace tend to degenerate over time unless they are re-sparked by the word of God. Stories like these are in the Bible to surprise us with how involved God is in the world. He's very much involved in the world. He's not so distant that he doesn't know what's going on in our lives. And stories like these, they embolden us to expect that God can do far more abundantly than all that we ever ask or imagine or think. This is true for Israel. They found this out this day. And this is also true for us that God's grace can turn a certain defeat into a surprising victory. Well, I want to re-sketch this story by looking at three surprises. There are many more than just three, but here are the three I want to focus on. A surprising alliance, a second, a surprising message, and third, a surprising victory. A surprising alliance, message, and victory. Now, brothers and sisters, it is my heart's desire to be very helpful to you uh, it's no joy for me or for you to simply listen to me talk about the Bible. I want to apply this text to your life. But you're going to need to bear with me as we go through this story because there are a few dangers. If I try to force an application of this story early on in this sermon, it's going to be forced. It's not really there. There's not a whole lot of application that's just patently obvious at the beginning of this story. So what we're going to need to do is retrace this story, see if this principle is true, and if this is true, then we'll try to apply this to our lives at the end of the sermon. So first danger, applying too early. Second danger is losing focus on the text, and therefore when we get to the end of the, of the story, we're actually not as convinced of the application that is coming. So bear, bear with the word of God. It, I think it's a fascinating story if we can get our minds around it. So let's see how this story begins in verses 1 to 8, a surprising alliance. Many of you know that I am a new father, and there are many amazing things about being a new dad. But there's one thing in particular that's 
really not all that fun. And it's hearing the same old kid songs time after time after time. If I hear Baby Shark one more time by Pink Fong, I'm going to get rid of all the speakers in my house. It's very annoying. We might be tempted to treat this first paragraph in 2 Kings 3 the way we treat little kid songs that are annoying. We've heard this introductory paragraph before. It's an introduction of a new king. Uh, but let's not, let's not treat the word of God the way we might treat little kid songs. There's something here for us to learn. Notice a few things. Jehoram, the king of Israel, he does something positive. Verse 2, he puts away the pillar of Baal. He puts away the pillar of Baal. This is a positive step forward, is it not? Yahweh has been showing his dominance for the past few chapters over this no-God Baal. And here, Jehoram, he puts the pillar of Baal away. Good step, Jehoram. Well done. But look at the Bible's impatience with sin. With the very same hands that he uses to put away the pillar of Baal, he clings to the sin of Jeroboam. The Bible has no patience for an idolater. And he is just as committed to worshiping the golden calves as Jeroboam was. And anytime we see someone breaking the first and second commandments, we should pay very special attention. God doesn't trifle with our sin. It's a serious crime to dethrone God from his rightful place as God. So this first paragraph, if this is the foyer of the house, then the foyer is an absolute mess. This is not a good start to this story. We should be expecting a not-so-great story flowing from this paragraph. Well, Ahab, who's Jehoram's father, had made an agreement with Misha, king of Moab. Hey, send me 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But Misha doesn't do this. So... The king gathers all of Israel. Look at verse 6. He musters all Israel to go fight against Moab and Misha, their king. Now, it never hurts to bolster your army with more fighters, or at least that's how the unregenerate human mind works. So the king of Israel goes to the southern king in Judah, and he says, verse 7, will you join me? Will you go out to fight Moab and Misha with me? And the king of Judah is like, for sure, I got you, man. I'll go out to war with you. My my guys are yours. My weaponry is your weaponry. Let's go win this thing. This is a very surprising alliance for at least three reasons. The first reason this is a surprising alliance is because Israel, northern kingdom, Judah, southern kingdom, they've been separate essentially since 1 Kings chapter 12. So we're seeing at least momentarily a, a reunion of sorts. Now, I'm not going to suggest that this is the reunion of of both kingdoms, but there's an alliance here that should surprise us. These kingdoms have been separate for a long time. The second reason this is surprising is that Ahab, Jehoram's father, struck up a similar agreement with the southern kingdom when he was alive. And when he went out to war with the southern kingdom, it actually led to Ahab's death. So if you're Jehoram, you're thinking, my dad just, uh, he went to war with these guys and he died the last time he did this. Uh, doesn't show the best sense in Jehoram, does it? It's a surprising alliance. Third, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, is a decent king. In, in the whole database of all the kings in First and Second Kings, he's actually uh, on the positive end of the spectrum. 
So it's surprised that this man of good sense would go to war with Jehoram, who's a clear idolater. It's a very surprising alliance. Well, we've established that, but the battle hasn't yet begun. Hasn't yet begun, I should say. So how's it going to go? We need to look at the second surprise in the story, which is verses 9 to 20, a surprising message, a surprising message. Now, they go through Edom. Edom is south of Moab. So they come from the north, they go through Edom in order to attack Moab, but their GPS doesn't appear to be working, so they go on what's called a circuitous march. It should not have taken them seven days to get to Moab, but they're going in this circular fashion as they wander around in the wilderness. This is what happens when the people of God try to do something without first seeking God's guidance on the matter. This sounds very similar to what happened to the Exodus generation when they were wandering around for 40 years in a circuitous march on their way to the promised land. They're like a dog chasing its tail. Well, if that makes us think about the Exodus generation, then what comes next should also make us think about the Exodus generation. They get dehydrated. These can be lethal conditions if you don't have water. This is a dry, dry, hot place. So they become dehydrated very quickly. And in their minds, they think that at this point, they have certainly been defeated. They think we're going to die out here if we don't get any water. And, and technically speaking, that's true. And then, ironically, this is the first time that Yahweh is talked about in this passage. They grumble, verse 10. The idolatrous king of Israel says, Alas, the Lord, all caps Lord, Yahweh has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Pretty comical that almost everyone believes in the sovereignty of God when they feel like they've received a death sentence. This is the first time that he's really going to call and think about Yahweh. This is a great example of that great proverbial statement in Proverbs 19.3 that when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. We, we, we devise folly in our hearts, and when it leads to our ruin, our destruction, then we say, this is Yahweh's fault. Well, no, your heart devised this folly. So they rage against God. They, they grumble against God, and their own folly brought them to this place in the wilderness. So what are they going to do? They feel certainly defeated. So at this point, they say, okay. It's time to seek Yahweh. Time to seek Yahweh. Pastor Will mentioned this last week. Oftentimes, it was customary at this time to have prophets in the army in order for what's about to happen, in order for the people to seek a divine message from their God as they're going out to war. So the decent king of Judah says, verse 11, look again, is there no prophet of Yahweh here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Now, if we zoom out, of 2 Kings chapter 3, and we remember last week, Elisha's ministry just began in 2 Kings chapter 2. And for about the next 10 chapters, the main character after Yahweh himself is going to be Elisha. So the question is, where's Elisha? If he just got introduced here, his ministry just got introduced here, and he's going to consume the next 10 chapters, then we should be thinking, I wonder if Elisha is around. And surprisingly, one of the servants of the king of Israel knows that Elisha is here. Verse 11, Elisha, he's Elijah's apprentice. He's here. 
So the king of Judah, he says, the word of Yahweh is with him, verse 12. The word of Yahweh is with Elisha. What a great line. So now that they've identified Elisha, we have to wonder what's he going to do. They go down to meet him, all three kings. Well, Elisha's mentor, Elijah, he wasn't known to be all that nice to idolatrous kings. He wasn't exactly the guy that uh, the idolatrous kings wanted to see when they were having a bad day. He didn't have much patience with them. So Elisha, he taunts them. Look at verse 13. What do I have to do with you? If you're so bent on your idols, then go seek a word from your idol. See if they can actually give you a comforting word in this battle. I said it a few weeks ago. Don't confuse humility before the word with confidence with the word. Elisha has confidence with the word. He's still humble, even though he's taunting the foolish idolatry of the king of Israel. What do I have to do with you, he says. He's essentially like, I'm going to give you the silent treatment. It might feel a bit childish on Elisha's part, but he's, he's sending a divine message by saying he doesn't want to speak to these kings. Because I'll tell you one thing that's worse than a famine of water, and that is a famine of the word of God. If he doesn't have the word of Yahweh, this is far more detrimental than not having water in the wilderness for a few days. This is far more important. And if Yahweh won't speak, then get this, this is a certain defeat for the people. All the cards seem to be aligning that this is over for Israel, Judah, and Edom. And almost verbatim, the king of Israel says, verse 13, Yahweh did this, so I want Yahweh's word. And then Elisha takes another jab at him. He taunts him one more time. If Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, weren't here, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even look at you. I wouldn't even look at you. I, I don't have one more moment of time for you, the idolatrous king of Israel. But Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, is here, so I'll seek the word of Yahweh for you. Bring me a musician. And we have to ask this question. What is it about Jehoshaphat that makes Elisha so concerned for him? We established, okay, Elisha, uh, Jehoshaphat, he's a decent king, but is that good enough to make Elisha say that he's going to seek a word of Yahweh for this idolatrous king in the north? Why does he care so much about Jehoshaphat? I want to submit to you that he cares about the southern king because he knows God's covenant. God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 that there would always be someone on the throne of David. And when the kingdom split, the throne of David is where? Is it in the north or is it in the south? It's in the south, in Judah. And so because Jehoshaphat is sitting on the throne of David, and he knows that David's throne will last forever. He will seek Yahweh on account of his word. I think that's the logic here. I'm not going to go to the grave saying that, but it begs the question, why does he care? And I think it's because he knows his covenants. God is faithful to a faithless people, and he'll seek his word for them. Now, as we think about the word that we should expect from Elisha, the the sermon we should expect is a, is a sermon of fire and brimstone. Because look at 1 Kings 19.17. I think we have a slide for this. Uh, this is how Elisha's ministry is framed. 
Concerning the house of Ahab, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Context, Ahab's house, terrible, northern kingdom. They're all going to die because of their, their stubborn rebellion against God. And a long time ago, it was prophesied that they would all die essentially during the time of Elisha. So what do we expect? We expect a word of brimstone and we expect a word of judgment from Elisha because this is what his ministry is supposed to be all about. You can imagine how surprising his three-point sermon really was. Point number one, though you're sitting here in the wilderness, even though there's not a drop of water within sight, verse 17, and no hope of finding water, I'm going to send pools in the wilderness. I'm going to make these stream beds full of water. What a word. God taking their certain defeat and hinting at the fact that he might have a surprising victory for them. Not only will will there be enough water for you, the humans, but your livestock, even they are going to have enough to drink. And this is a light thing in the sight of God, verse 18. That's a good first point of a sermon, water. God is going to miraculously provide water for you. Point number two of the sermon, victory, verse 18. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. In other words, even though you have every reason to expect judgment, I am going to give you victory. What a surprising amount of grace from God. Point one, water. Point two, victory. Point three, directions. Here's the application. Make the land of Moab uninhabitable so that they can't perpetuate their idolatry. What a sermon from Elisha. Very quick, mercifully short sermon. Two points are points of grace. And the third point is a point of application. I'm giving you water. I'm giving you victory. And here's how you should pummel this land. Are you beginning to see here in the words of Elisha the incredible grace of God? How do you explain the grace of God in this context? What reason can we point at? Even if we point at the covenant with David, how can we point at why David deserved that covenant? He didn't. There's no reason that we can give for grace except grace. And the grace of God has always been a source of much marveling for for Christians and the people of God. I want to stack about five short quotes for you here to prove to you that the grace of God has always been a source of much amazement for the people of God. First, a Jew before Christ's day, Psalm 103.10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. You say, oh, God becomes gracious in Jesus Christ. Well, the psalmist says he doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. What do you mean God wasn't gracious to the people of Israel before Christ came? How about an Australian theologian? He puts it this way, nothing is more remarkable than the grace of God, and nothing illustrates that grace more than God's perseverance and goodness to a continually rebellious people. This is the way God shows off his grace. Though we're as stubborn as a board, he continues to pour out his grace to us. Well, there's an Australian. How about a Dutch theologian? The grace of God is not only the forgiveness of sins, but the endowment of royalty. God seems to have no limit on his grace. He adds royalty to the forgiveness of sins. 
How about an English pastor who says there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you? Though our sins are many, his mercy is more. Oh, I love that song that we sang earlier. What a declaration. So we've, we've had Australia, we've had the Netherlands, we've had England. How about an American novelist? She says, grace is not so poor a thing that it cannot present itself in any number of ways. We might not have been sniffing around for the grace of God in this story, but what do you know? There it is in the story of Israel versus Moab. And so it should be no surprise to us that an inspired apostle named John closes the very Bible with these words in Revelation 22. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. That's the final word of our Bibles, friends. It's a word of grace, as if to say, here's your hermeneutic. Here's the way you should interpret the whole Bible, that God is pouring out grace where sin is abounding. How do you account for surprising grace like the grace we see here in 2 Kings 3? The only way we can account for it is by saying God is a gracious God. And God's grace can turn a certain defeat into a surprising victory. Let me ask you, does the grace of God amaze you? When you sing amazing grace, do you really put the emphasis on amazing, marvelous, unbelievable, surprising? This is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that would save a wretch, a sinner, a worm like me. Do you really believe that the grace of God is unmerited, is freely given, is more abundant than your sin and your iniquity? God's grace has always done this. He turns what appears to be a certain defeat into a surprising victory. I think this is the point of Elisha's message. Well, the next morning, what happens? Water begins to actually fill this wasteland. You see, Yahweh, he has a way of turning a wasteland into an oasis. The, the surprise that God has, it reveals his sovereignty. Uh, we don't expect it, but only a sovereign God could fill a parched land with pools of water, Psalm 107.35, he turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. This is what God can do. This is what God can do. He sends a miraculous provision of water for these people. And as the water begins to flow, the Moabite army is beginning to take position for a battle. And this brings us to the third surprise, which is a surprising victory in verses 21 to 27, a surprising victory. We've had plenty of surprises so far, so we should expect a few more twists. As the Moabites wake up, they're in their homeland. They have home field advantage. This is a real advantage in war to fight from the security of your home and the strength of your home. So the fact that they're going to Moab once again contributes to the fact that this should be a certain defeat. And so they see something. What do they see? They look out on the wilderness, and it appears that as the sun is rising, that there's a bunch of blood in the wilderness, and they don't really inquire much about what would ha what, what's happened here, but they just assume, hey, we've won by forfeit. The, the kings, they marched out against us, and they, they fought against each other. They murdered each other, and look at all this blood from the fact that they fought against each other. That's what they see. They see blood. So what do they say? Naturally, they say, to the spoil. Let's go, let's go clean up after this mess. Let's go get all the treasures that they brought out here with them. 
But you can't really pin down the grace of God, can you? Because thinking they were going to retrieve spoil, they actually become spoil. They think they're going to clean up after this mess, but as they attack the camp or as they go to clean up the camp of Israel, lo and behold, here come the Israelites and they attack them from behind. They rose, verse 24, they rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And then verse 25, they essentially do the application that Elisha told them to do. They make the land uninhabitable. They cast stones over everything. And then something shocking happens. I wonder if you caught it when we read it the first time. The Bible reads in verse 27, then he, that is the king of Moab, he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and he offered him for a burnt offering on the wall child sacrifice. Now you say, this is a vile book that would include something like this. Well, let me assure you that this was not worship to Yahweh. Yahweh explicitly forbids this in his word. But the king of Moab, he does something extreme to his no God at all, Chemosh, who actually expected stuff like this every once in a while. And he sacrifices the heir to the throne. He sacrifices the son who is to be his heir as a burnt offering on the wall. It's a shocking ending to this story. And this makes the very last two lines of this story all the more confounding, doesn't it? Verse 27, and there came great wrath. You'd you'd think against who? You'd think against Moab. And there came great wrath against Israel. And they withdrew from him and returned to their own lands. What do we make of this line, these two lines? Let me tell you that there are about six different interpretations about what's happening here because there's two primary difficulties. The first one is who's administering the wrath. It naturally might read that, oh, this is Yahweh's wrath, but we're not told whose wrath it is. Is it Yahweh's? Is it Moab's? Is it Misha's? Is it someone else's altogether? So we're not told whose wrath it is, and we're not told what reason the wrath comes against Israel. There's speculation as to why the wrath is provoked. So it'd be easy for me to say there are about six, six different interpretations about what's happening here uh, and just hide behind that and not tell you what I think. But let me just tell you uh, my lowly opinion of what's happening here. I think that when the Moabite army sees this extreme act that the king of Moab does, namely sacrifice his own son, Humanity has a way of rallying behind extreme acts. And so they see the extreme that the king of Moab is willing to go to, and they begin to fight like dogs. And the wrath here is the wrath of the Moabites against the Israelites. That's my, that's my take. Take it or leave it. But we need to make some sort of sense of what's happening here. And so you say, well, Eric, this actually undermines the whole point that you're trying to make that God's grace turns a certain defeat into a surprising victory. This doesn't really look like a victory. Well, let me suggest to you that though this is not an ultimate victory, it is a victory nonetheless. They do do, uh, dominate Moab in a way that we're not expecting. And though it's not a conclusive victory and they wipe out everyone, it is still a victory nonetheless. And any victory in the kingdom of God can be attributed to his grace. Well, this is the end of the story. This is a bizarre story. I'd be curious 
this is anyone's favorite story in the Bible, I'd be willing to bet a lot if I was a betting man, which I'm not, but I'd be willing to bet a lot that this is no one's favorite story in the Bible. It's a bizarre, it's a bizarre story. It has all sorts of twists and turns and shocking elements in it, but I think it displays one thing, that God is gracious to a constantly and continuously rebellious people. That's our story here, friends. I wonder if you're beginning to see this principle emerge, that God indeed, strictly on account of his grace, takes what appears to every single human being a certain defeat and turns it into a surprising victory. And here, by way of application, here's the question that I want to ask. Is this indicative of how God works? Is this a pattern of the way God works? Or is this a one-off? Is this an isolated event? And we should sort of just leave this story here in 2 Kings. It's an interesting little story, but it doesn't have much to contribute to us today. Well, let me see if we can trace a pattern here. Remember that First and Second Kings, they're written to people who live where? They live in exile. And if anything spells a certain defeat, it's exile. Someone who's out of the land that God promised. They don't have a king in the same way that they once had. Uh, they're not experiencing the blessing of the nations that was prophesied about them. Certainly, the people sitting there next to the rivers in Babylon are thinking, certainly we've been defeated. But this story comes in and encourages the people who sit in Babylon, and, and it encourages them to know that God can turn what feels to them like a certain defeat, and there's a very surprising victory waiting for them. It would have been a great encouragement to them. And this is actually, I think, the exact same message that we find at the end of 2 Kings. I invite you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 25, the, the last word that these people have as they go into exile 2 Kings 25, 27 to 30. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, catch this, he graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Let me paraphrase that. They're sitting there in exile. And the Babylonian king looks at Jehoiachin, who should have been the king in Judah, and he takes off his prison garments, puts them at the dining table of the king, and gives him an allowance all the days of his life. Here's a pagan king showing grace to Judah's king, who is sitting on David's throne. It's a very strange way to close 2 Kings. But it's a reminder that even though they feel certainly defeated in exile, that God has surprising twists and turns for them all by the power of his grace. So it's true for the exiles. It was true in 2 Kings 3. How about for Daniel? Didn't it look like a certain defeat when they threw him in that cave full of lions? To the, un, to the unregenerate mind, that was a certain defeat, was it not? But God turns a certain defeat into a surprising victory. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That flame that was burning hotter than it had ever burned before, that seemed to be like the end of their lives. But what appeared to be a certain defeat 
God turns into a surprising victory. How about for Esther and Mordecai and all the Jews in the days of Esther? The very gallows that Haman wants to hang Mordecai on become the gallows that Haman is hung on. God turns a certain defeat into a surprising victory in the day of Esther. How about for you and for me? I've talked to enough of you to know that there are many of you who experienced some sort of tragedy in your life before you became a Christian. And that tragedy brought you so low. You thought you were certainly defeated. But God used that certain defeat and he brought for you a surprising victory, the victory of faith. He used you bottoming out in order to win you to himself. Is this not characteristic of how our God works? And maybe you came in here this morning having no interest in church, no interest in the gospel, but you feel so defeated that you're willing to try anything. And I've got good news for you from 2 Kings 3 this morning, that God's grace can overflow in your life and he can turn what feels like a certain defeat in your life this morning into a surprising victory. Maybe you feel like your marriage is hanging on by a thread. You feel certainly defeated by it. Well, a surprise is ahead, friends. A surprise by the grace of God. Maybe you feel beaten down, certainly defeated by a cancer diagnosis. Well, I've got good news for you. That God's grace can turn that into a surprising victory. Maybe you've been trying to win a coworker time and time again at work, and you feel like it's over with them. I'm certainly defeated. Nothing's ever going to change. Well, maybe you're in a good place to experience the overflowing grace of God because he can turn what feels like a certain defeat into a surprising victory. Here's how this story applies to our lives this morning, that we do need to believe in our hearts, that we have nothing to bring to God and we have nothing to offer this world. We are certainly defeated by our sin and by our immorality, but God can take us and use us, and bring a great victory for us. You may have thought to yourself, this might be the least known story in the Bible. I I, I believe that it might be one of them. But doesn't it actually make the same point as the story we're going to celebrate next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday? That the friends and family of Jesus, as they stood there, seeing Jesus pinned to a Roman cross. The first day, he's dead. The second day, he's dead. Certainly, this is a defeat. But the third day, what does God do? He turns the cross of Christ, a certain defeat, into a surprising victory on that third day by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's raised to newness of life. The story in 2 Kings 3, it makes the same point that we're going to celebrate next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday, that this is how God works. And if anything proclaims to you that God turns these defeats into victory, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. So you have it on record, both from 2 Kings 3, from Daniel 1 to 6, from Esther 1 to 11. You have it on record from the cross of Jesus Christ in all four gospels that this is how God works. I pray that that resurrects your heart here this morning because I know for a fact that some of you feel defeated by something here this morning. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. 
We hope you were encouraged by God's word. And for more info for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.